Unfortunately, because Brewster and Bradford and the rest of these middle wares are technically foreigners um, in, in uh, the Netherlands, uh, they have to get really shitty jobs and they literally live in a place that's actually named Stink Alley. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine what problems they might have there. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Howdy, howdy. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateur's best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're gonna try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? We have a plethora of colorful characters with various kinds of backgrounds because we're covering the story of Thanksgiving. But mostly, Aww. we're gonna be focusing on a man named William Bradford. And yet again, we will be cynically exploiting a holiday to get more views. I mean, kind of. The episode will be accessible and worth listening to at any time of the year, but it is indeed the week, the week of Thanksgiving 2019 uh, as we record and release, and I've been wanting to cover this story for a long-ass time, so I thought, hey, why not this week? Or... You're just getting tired of me covering badass Catholics and you want to bring some sort of weird Protestant Puritan bullcrap onto the podcast. I have to preserve my people somehow. <laughs> uh, even though they they tore down the, the Catholic institution that had been there from the time of Christ himself. Oh my god, wow. Well, not in New England they didn't. Well, hey, hey, hey. Guess what I just got on my phone, George? A notification from the Walmart app. We have pre-Black Friday, pre-Black Friday deals. They're going fast, lit emoji. Major, hurry in for major savings on select UHD TVs starting at $248 plus much more. What is your reaction to this stunning revelation from Walmart? Why the fuck do you have the Walmart app? I... For, I never deleted it after I quit working there. Okay, I'll let you. I'll let it pass this time. But for real, dude, thin ice. Yeah. <laughs> like we're gonna we're gonna have to have to have an intervention. Are we gonna have to start having rants about corporate America now? Don't we already have those? I mean, we do, but we've never like really, really, really gone for it. Maybe well, we should do a whole episode on corporations. <laughs> well, we wouldn't <laughs> want our social credit score to go down now, would we? This is true. This is true. I better delete this Walmart app because it's probably listening to me right now and and uh, hiking the prices as I next time I go in to buy some more hot pockets. Yep, gotta delete that. Okay. All right. So, George, what do you what do you say we uh, head down to the old history lab and do some history science? That sounded a little bit weird, but okay. I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's just go. <laughs> You're just, you're making this all One man, a squad of Christians with funny hats, a dinky tub of a ship, a feast to end all feasts, and a world of adventure. 
join us as we finally cover our most requested character of all time, William Bradford, the man, the myth, the Puritan. So we're literally just lying to the listeners now. Cool. Yeah. Yep, we are. (laughs) So, George, tell me, if you had to take one thing with you on the Mayflower as you journeyed away from religious tyranny, what would you bring? Well, in the interest of being historically accurate, I think I would probably bring religious tyranny. Wait, what? But you're journeying away from religious tyranny. What are you implying? I'm just saying, man, I've read the history of New England. Oh, well, I didn't get that far. I just read about it before it was New England. Ha, 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 That literally doesn't make any sense. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, and what about you, Aaron? What would you pack for the journey across the sea? Uh, probably, um... I don't know, like winter clothing and maybe food. Who the fuck? I'm getting a call from the Netherlands. Ugh, spam. God, so many interruptions. This is this was, is already a cursed episode. I know this is fucking sick. I'm not even. I'm not happy right now. We haven't gotten five minutes in, and I'm getting trolled by somebody from the Netherlands who thinks my name is Eric. Well, is it Eric? No. You may be eligible to win a... No, I'm not Eric. Go away. We've been trying, no, to, fun- we've been trying to reach you about the extended warranty on your car. Yeah. Ugh. This is the second time they called, too. i got to block that number. I don't want them calling back. Ugh. <laughs> I was trying to answer the question. What would I bring with me? You know what? I, I would bring with me a good fucking episode. <laughs> That'd be good. You know what? Screw it. Computer, please bring up William Bradford and everything else about Thanksgiving because this is a cursed episode and everybody knows it and I'm going to stop freaking out. I'm just going to tell a friggin' story. All right. Sounds like Aaron's not in the Christmas spirit yet. I'm not, even though they were playing Christmas music at the coffee shop I was at researching this. In November. Every time you play Christmas music in November, an elf gets sentenced to 10 years of hard labor in a Siberian gulag. Yeah, don't do it for the elves. Don't play the music until December. Okay, here we go. So, you know how I said earlier that earlier that uh, William Bradford is our most requested character on the show. I, I do vaguely remember that. I vaguely remember calling you a liar. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not lying. William Bradford is indeed our most requested character on the show, aside from Jesus. And I thought I should shout out those who made the request. Okay. Okay. And yeah, obviously, like, we don't want to touch Jesus with a 10-foot pole at this point. That'd just be, um, there's too much going on there. Don't want to touch him with a 10-foot pole or a 10-foot lance, as the case may be. Not to, you know the joke we have on the show, right? That our last episode's going to be Hitler and Jesus? That's a really weird fanfic, but okay. (laughs) So yeah, let me just uh, shout out everybody who made the request for William Bradford. We have David Wingley, Priscilla McDougal, Gary Jorberg, Paul DeSantos... Tiffany Wilkerson, Quincy Fargoland, Doyle McFlipper, Jolly Oliver, Turtle World, Jamba Juice, Donut Bojangles, 1989 Honda Civic with a dented fender, Chair Cycle, Treebeard, a major patron of ours named Bill Clinton, Doug Wilbur, Joe Baggerson, Felton Bickleby, Jill Delaney, the infamous hacker known as 4chan, and finally a listener who is hilariously enough also named William Bradford, who is kind enough to write into the show requesting this character, saying the following, and just pull out this letter here 
Dear We Talk About Dead People, for years I have been plagued by the curse of sharing a name with a famous historical character that nobody or that everybody cares deeply about and nobody finds boring. Uh, when they card me at the bar, people always laugh and say things like, Hey, Pilgrim, where are your shoe buckles? Or, or they say, Give me some turkey, you filthy Puritan. It's been very painful to live this way, and I want you to cover the religious dissident William Bradford so that I can finally be free of this curse. I am not a pilgrim. I work at KFC, and I've got a girlfriend, and I'm saving for a ring, and I was hoping we talk about dead people could answer my cry for help and save me from my namesake. Thank you so much. Yours in Christ, William Bradford. P.S. Please do not read this on the air. If my girlfriend I found out I listened to your stupid show, she'd probably... Anyway, that's unimportant. Enclosed in this letter was an entire Thanksgiving turkey and a bucket of cranberry sauce. So thank you for that, William Bradford, and thank you for writing in. It's always such an honor to hear from totally real listeners such as yourself. This isn't padding. <laughs> clearly. Clearly not. <laughs> but yes, can you believe that all these real people have been requesting this guy? It's been like 10 years of getting requests. And I don't know if you know this, but this podcast is like literally only two years old. So not only do people not like really want to hear the story of William Bradford, they have wanted to like six years before we talk about dead people even existed. What podcast? Oh right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, that's a lot of hype, and I'm hoping I don't let you all down. I carry this solemn burden with the reverence of a thousand Puritans. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot of reverence right there, and a lot of reverence. You know what I mean? Oh. <laughs> hey. Anyway, so with that out of the way, let us begin. But where shall we begin? Indeed, with so many of these stories, it's hard to know where to start. Because I'm a psychopath. I like digging really, really deep into the past to give full context to these stories. But today, I want to go eat turkey and rolls until I pass out, uh, so I will withhold my full power. Instead of beginning at the beginning of the history of England, we will begin in the March of 1590, in the northern English radioactive kill zone known as Yorkshire, in a hey, little village, Yorkshire is nice. Yorkshire, I know it's it's a joke. <laughs> I'm trying to prevent. They have pudding. That's true. All right, they have the the Yorkshire pudding. Didn't you make Yorkshire pudding for me once? I do. Yes, I think. Yeah, when you visited me, I think I did make Yorkshire pudding. Actually, yeah. that, that was, was that was a weird day. Like me, you, and your brother like cooked a dinner. Yeah, that was, was like that was trippy. That was trippy drank a beer and I wasn't even 21. Holy oh, shit. Oh, whoa. Wow. Easy there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're in Yorkshire and here we find a woman named Alice Briggs and who? A man named William Bradford. But this isn't our William Bradford. We're talking about his father, uh, whose father was also named William Bradford. Uh, I'm sensing a pattern. I'm sensing yeah. a pattern. Now, why are they all named William Bradford? Well, I'm glad you asked, George. I literally didn't. Okay, well, <laughs> I pretended you did. It turns out the more generations you go naming all the boys the same thing, the more powerful they become, which is why it was reported by contemporary scholars that our William Bradford had laser vision and could phase through walls, shoe buckles, and all. So anyway, Alice Briggs and William Bradford Senor uh, were a uh, pretty wealthy family. In fact, they had been have been actually tied to English nobility by some researchers. This wealth took the form of the family owning a slightly larger farm than the typical English farmer, which of course, you know, the typical English farmer had like a square of land the size of a dish sponge and a home that was 
like just a tarp hanging on a string that was like strung between the necks of two Irishmen standing ten feet apart. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, these Bradfords, they were people of means, so they didn't have the Irishman in the tarp. No, they had an actual house and a really good plot of land. But not everything is so great for the Bradfords. For one, William Jr.'s old dad dies, so we're down one William Bradford with two left to go. All right, be in peace. I know. And he died when young William Bradford was, like, one year old. Um, But his mother remarried, which for some reason necessitated William Jr. being sent to live with Grandpa William, the only remaining William Bradford besides Jr., so they're trying to increase his power level by increasing his exposure to Grandpa William Bradford. And little, little William lives with old William for about two years until Grandpa Bradford also kicks the bucket. At which point, little William Bradford Jr. goes back home to live with his mother and his stepfather. Confused yet? I know I am. For about a year, things went back to normal, I guess. But then his mom died when he was seven. <sighs> making little William effectively an orphan. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of death in little, little William's life. Uh, I don't know if you had to comment on that. I mean, yeah, they are dead. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what I'm supposed to say to that. Um, yes, people know. are definitively dead, and uh, yeah, he's seven, so that that actually really sucks. Um, yeah, poor kid. Well, we're on. We're we're definitely on brand here, talking about dead people. So here we go. Oh, so yeah, like you said, this sucks for seven-year-old little William Bradford, and he's pretty heartsick over the whole thing. I mean, he's he's fucking seven, and even though he has a place to stay with a couple of his uncles, are they named help- William? Probably, but I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> so he's staying with these two dudes, and uh, he can't even help out on the farm because he's just too weak I to mean, do anything. I mean, he is literally seven. But, like, back then, that was basically being 18. So, yeah, I mean, either way, he's too sick to do anything anyway. For as much as a seven-year-old could do, he can't even do it. That's just how sad he is. But nonetheless, William Bradford, at this young age, finds himself with a ton of free time and nothing to do. So he does what all seven-year-olds do, and you're going to love this. He cracks open the classics and starts reading away. Ah, just like Josiah Harlan. Just like Josiah Harlan. Uh, He chews his way through every book he can get his hands on, especially the Bible, you Catholic fuck, and begins to develop a serious... I don't know what that is. (laughs) Catholics obviously don't read the Bible. So he starts uh, memorizing verses for Awana and begins to develop a serious intellect and a desire to pursue the deepest things at seven. So he's really sort of sparking a serious interest in religion and theology and essentially, you know, he's born in a time when there's just major religious upheaval within the Christian West. Um, you know, you've got, we talked about this on the Ireland episode and we, we talked about the English uh, or the Protestant Reformation many times and it's, uh, it's, um, effects, you might say. Uh, And this is, it's sort of like little William Bradford was just, he was just born for this time. Uh, And we'll get into what exactly I mean by that in a little bit, but um, anyway, so he's studying this stuff for like, from like seven to 12. He's like five years all in his own time um, because he's just, he's just too sick to work on the farm. He's like, hey, I I just want to read my books and that's it. Um, so yeah, he's growing, learning all that, and you know, 
just learning and getting all that good stuff that happens when you read books that aren't ghost-written. Are you suggesting that not every public figure immediately has a 185-page book that is filled with aphorisms and vacuous observations that are identical to a hundred other such books ready to be Uh, printed and put on sale at the airport as soon as they get out of office? They literally just change the names. You know that, right? Like, half the books are are the same thing. They change the names, and they change some of the words, and then they just publish them. People are like, oh my god! Uh, Michelle Obama, she wrote a book! You know, so did Barack, I gotta read it! It's funny. I don't know. But, ghost-written books are of the devil. <laughs> Literal crap. Um. <laughs> so anyway, he's reading normal good things that are good for your brain. And at 12 years old, Bradford would have an experience that would alter the course of his life forever. And what was this this life-altering, life-changing, uh, major blow-up event? Well, he, uh, he went to church. <laughs> suspicious. Uh, I know, very suspicious. He, uh, a friend invited him to join him on a little road trip, uh, 10 miles down the way to Nottinghamshire to hear some preaching by a dude named Richard Clifton. And in case you didn't know, in the 1500s, going 10 miles to get to anywhere was kind of a big deal for someone of this class. Um, So this was like almost like a little bit of a pilgrimage. Um, And he goes to hear this preacher named Richard Clifton, who was known as being a brownist... Uh, no, not a brownie, you pathetic stoner fuck. A brownist. But Aaron, you say, what is a brownist and why is that name so dumb? Well, I'm glad you asked, dear listener, and I have the answer for you. Hey, George, do you remember talking about the Church of England in the Ireland series? Well, um, I think it came up once or twice. Yeah, we might have mentioned it. Like a passing. I'm sorry to say it actually hasn't gone anywhere. It's still around. (laughs) <laughs> oh, hey, and do you also remember that whole dispute between Anglicanism and Catholicism? I may have some slight memories of that. <laughs> well, I got good news. That hasn't gone anywhere either, so... <laughs> well... We're just, uh... Gabe Trosna Hortain, Sassanach. What the fuck does that mean? Go fuck yourself sideways, Saxon. <laughs> now, this whole Protestant Reformation was a shit show, as we have discussed before, and we've discussed it especially on the Jan van Leiden episode, which, of course, I recommend to everybody who likes to hear about cults. To make this simple, just imagine three camps. In one camp, you have the Catholics of the 1600s. This is a people defined by its tradition, history, and reach. Now, it's not perfect, but nothing is. And in another camp, you have the Church of England, which is defined by the sexual whims of some fat-ass named Henry VIII, but also by the fact that it's technically Protestant, but mostly just satanic. And then in the third... (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. I threw that in there just for you, buddy. Um, So then in the third camp, you have people who dislike both the Church of England and the Catholic Church. And each other. And each other. The problem is that this this hatred for the Church of England and the Catholic Church is the only thing tying this camp together. People are running around, stealing all the s'mores, bitching about Catholics, wearing their pants on their head and their shoes on their ass. Everybody's got different ideas about how best to hate the Catholic Church, but nobody has any ideas about how to make it work better. In fact, they're mostly just starting cults, revolutions, peasant revolts, and getting people executed, burned at the stake, tortured for nothing. It's 
chaos. You might as well not even call it a camp. It's just a, it's a circus. So in the midst of this insane riot of ideas, you find the Brownists. These people are named after Robert Brown, who was a dissident Protestant against the Church of England, which I, I, a Protestant against the Church of England. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. Anyway, so Brown had decided well, there, to. Well, there is a there. There were you know various sort of corollary movements of breaking apart from the Catholic Church that were in existence before and at the same time as the official break with Henry VIII. Like, that's why Scotland, of course, ended up with this huge Presbyterian population, which then got transferred over to Northern Ireland and that. So you have sort of all these different um, strands of Reformation happening. And, of course, once England breaks away from the Catholic Church, that's really exacerbated because it's like, all right, we've done it. We don't have to listen to what Rome says anymore. And then a thousand people are like, so why do we have to listen to what you say? <laughs> right. Are you the new Rome? I was watching an interesting video about this recently, uh, about how the... It was it was an interesting perspective about how uh, church history basically shaped the West into what it is um, in more ways than most people like give it credit for, and how the Reformation and all that shit that went down in the Civil Wars and... Uh, the uh, Protestant Revolution, you might say, uh, basically fucked us over for the next 500 years or something like that. I don't know if you've ever heard that angle before. No, no, I, I have not. That's interesting. Anyway, so it, well, there's I certainly found it. An, certainly an argument to be made in terms of uh, scientific progress that the Protestant Reformation, yeah, fucked us all over because um, you remember, like when we talked about the monasteries and how they were kind of the forefront of um, you know research and advanced development in a lot of ways. Well, of course, yeah. you know they're like target numero uno for getting burned and massacred whenever there's Protestant uprisings, so that's bad. In addition, you just have the fact that so fucking many people died, like during the Thirty Years war over half the fucking population of germany died like half the total population holy shit yeah so you just wow. have like it really yeah it just like t tripped society and then just like <laughs> fucking jumped on it while it was down <laughs> like it yeah it absolutely derailed everything yeah because there was well, just a whole period of literal hundreds of years of yeah, just an incredibly chaotic situation. Yeah, and, you know, having a Protestant background myself, like, that's not something we even talk about. Like, at least not in my experience. We didn't, it wasn't like, oh, the Protestant Reformation, like, you know, in the context of, of all of history, like, was actually a huge disaster. It's just like, Martin Luther nailed well, yeah, no, the it's 95 like Jesus gave Jesus gave the Bible to Martin Luther, who gave it to Pastor Bob, right? Right, exactly. That's basically... <laughs> That's basically what uh what happened. And then Pastor Bob ripped a couple books out, retranslated it, and distributed it among the masses. Yay! Uh, yay! This is why the Bible was kept from the people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. 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 Uh, hey, I may not be Catholic, but I have a lot of sympathy for, for Catholic history. It's, uh, it's a shit show, especially after the Ireland episode. That just... I mean, fair. fair. Yeah. So anyway... The brownists, right? They're they're the they're the austere guys off to the side, um, and they're sort of like the middle way type, uh, which is of course the least popular way. Um, 
And so Brown had like a very smallish following of fellow middlewares, including this preacher that William Bradford was going to listen to named Richard Clifton. So William Bradford goes on to hang out with Richard Clifton, who is spitting straight facts about how fucked up the Anglican church really is. His opinion is that the Anglican church is actually still way too Catholic for him, and that it really needed to purify itself of these Catholic influences. So, he's not saying, oh, hey, the Anglican church might have problems. He's saying, the Catholics are infiltrating the Anglican church, and they're they're giving us all their traditions, and they're not even focusing on the divorce and, you know, whatever. Of Henry VIII, whatever. We need to do a whole series on this shit. I keep we co- keep covering it tangentially, you know. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so Bradford was like, "Hey, like, I'm kind of an Anglican, but I, I get what you're saying. Like, we can't have these Catholics running anything." So he he really, really liked what he was hearing from this Brownist. Um, but his uncles were like, "Yo, dude." You know, he's against everybody. Like, he's against the Anglicans, and he's against the Catholics, and there's... I don't know if you are aware of this, of this of this son, but there's, like, a major culture war going on in there, so going after the, the, the side that hates every other side is probably not a wise move. Um, so his uncles forbade him from going back to this church. But nonetheless, this lad literally snuck out to go to church. Like... To me, I was reading, I was like, ima- like, imagine that. It's a boy sneaking out not to smoke shit weed out of a banana or to awkwardly make out with that girl with the braces. Are we, is, but, this, are this, is this self-referential? No, I didn't. I never did. Oh. I, I, never, I never snuck out anywhere because my parents didn't fucking care where I went or what I did. Oh, you lucky bastard. It's like, well, I'm going to go work on my improvised explosive devices made out <laughs> made out of trash in the garage and they're just like we don't care son <laughs> make sure you gather the tobacco you're growing in the garden <laughs> yes yes i did literally grow tobacco in the garden when i was like 13 <laughs> and how did that go for you apparently there's like this whole process of like curing it and making it actually good because let me tell you what this shit was not good <laughs> Please describe your process. Um, planted tobacco, and then once the leaves were dead, gathered them up and attempted to smoke them out of a pipe that I made out of corn. Oh, (laughs) how did that taste? Like dirt, really. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Imagine that rotted plant material tasting (laughs) like dirt. Yeah, so that was, um... (laughs) Yeah, not a not one of my finer moments. Uh, still hilarious. Oh man. Okay. So yeah, so this kid's sneaking out to go to church. Um and not only is that hilarious in a way, but it's also really telling, I think, of William Bradford's character. Um this was a kid who from the beginning like wasn't afraid to go to the places you weren't supposed to go to get to the bottom of the whole, you know, deep question thing. In this case it was religion. And of course the cultural war he was going on at the time was you know, Christian sectarianism and separatism, division, all that stuff. And he was just like, guys, we have to talk about it, and there's got to be an answer. So he wanted to figure it out, and his uncles, probably both named William Bradford, weren't going to stop him. So that's that's one of the things I kind of like about him, was that, I mean, you get, like, you think about being born at that time, 
and how many people are just like getting sucked up into one side or another without really considering it. It seems like William Bradford, with his history and in the classics, and of course the Holy Scriptures, was interested in actually uh, coming to some kind of some kind of conclusion. So I don't know. I guess I have a little bit of sympathy for that. But during one of these secret sessions, which, by the way, the church was beginning to meet in secret because word was getting out that oh my God, there's dissident people outside my house. Um, when and during one of these uh, secret church sessions, uh, Bradford met a postmaster and bailiff, also named William. But this this guy, this William, was named William Brewster, and Brewster was one of the occupants of a place known as Scrooby Manor, which of course was neighbored <laughs> That's not by the a real name. Yeah, well, I was gonna say it was neighbored by the famous Shraggy Manor. No, <laughs> um, oh. so. Yeah, so Scrooby Manor, when it wasn't involved in unmasking the custodian, who would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling Anglicans, it was a sort of secret home off the grid for reformist churchmen. And at this time, it was something like a hub for other middle wares who were trying to unfuck the Anglican church. So you can imagine the kind of influence a guy like William Brewster, who was much older than William Bradford, would have on William Bradford. It was literally turning him into a Scrooby dude. <laughs> hey! Oh. Boom. And I cringily reuse that joke many times, so I hope you're ready uh, with your cringe face. I'm really not. Okay. <laughs> so, Brewster led, lent Bradford uh, a ton of books that were stored in this manner, Scrooby manner. Um, and most of these books were written by church reformers and like-minded individuals. And these books served Bradford in his journey through these trying times. Unfortunately, things were about to go from bad to worse for these church reformers. In 1603, when Bradford was 13, King James I ascended the throne and announced that he was really going to start going after the reformers. And reformers, as a category, basically meant anyone who dissented at all against the Anglican Church. So, uh, during his crackdown, Scrooby Manor became... I hate saying it. Scrooby Manor. I just said it again. Why did I do that? This place became something like a secret base for reformers. And more and more so. Like, it started out like, hey, we're gonna meet here and talk about the things you're not supposed to talk about. But then it became like, we're gonna hide out here and hope we don't get caught. And there were about 50 people involved in the secret meetings there, which was a pretty big audience for a secret club. Mm, this I don't like where this is going. I know. Wait, Why? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to add drama, Aaron. Roll okay. with it. Thank you for adding tension. Um, so, this unfortunately meant that it was, like, they're all in the secret club, 50 people meeting there weekly. Um, people are starting to be like, who, who are these people over there at that house? Um, and this made it way easier for bitches to dox everyone there on Twitter, which is basically what happened in 1607. God damn it. I know. The Archbishop of York was the main man who had a problem with all this, and he caught wind of it, and he had a bunch of people arrested, including William Brewster. More like the Archbishop of Dork. Yeah. <laughs> hey! Um, so yeah, he arrested a whole bunch of them. Not all of them, but a, but a good number. And they were later released and heavily fined. But even though they had their freedom again, it really wasn't freedom. It was like, hey, you're free to go, but we have Anglican spies watching your every move. And these Anglican spies are just waiting for another chance to fine and jail them again, perhaps to persecute them even further beyond, you know, fining and jailing. Um, in fact, this was already happening in London. Uh, word was spreading from 
uh, London that things were getting really bad there, and dissenters on any order or level, um, even people who were merely accused of any kind of dissension, were being imprisoned or star and starved to death, like dying in jail because they weren't fed because, say, somebody said. That guy said Henry VIII might be bad. Throw him in prison. And then they you know, just the starve. the English really like starving people to death, don't they? They're very good at it. It's like it's, motherfucking uh, I Stalin say, over here. I know, like, oh, God. All right. Um, I so assure anyway, you he has nothing to do with this. <laughs> so anyway, knowing that it was only a matter of time before this barbarity reached Yorkshire... Uh, the group at Scrooby Manor decided it was time to get the fuck out of Dodge, and ah, so they so made they all loaded up into the mystery machine. <laughs> yes, they did. They made illegal plans to flee to the Netherlands, which just called me weirdly enough. It all uh, where comes they would together. I know it's always the Dutch, isn't it? So anyway, in the Netherlands, they could at least enjoy religious freedom, or at least something like it. They couldn't get thrown in prison. Um, but this was very, very difficult to ap- accomplish. This this flight to the Netherlands. Not only were most people who could guarantee passage to the mainland disinterested in helping religious dissidents, many were on the side of the Anglicans um, and frequently got the uh, the attempted uh, uh, refugees like jailed again or whatever. And in one instance, one English ship captain agreed to take the distant dissidents to the Netherlands, and he was like, "Yeah, I got a ship, I got everything, I'll, I'll get you over there, you know, whatever, just pay me." Um, and they got all got together and they're like, all right, we're ready to go. And instead, you know, he narked on them and they all got arrested. And this is the first time William Bradford actually spent some time in jail, uh, for his, uh, religious dissension because of this one English captain's betrayal. So the next year, William Bradford and his lads managed to actually get out of the country by leaving in small groups rather than in one large mass, which is pretty smart. Um, and at this point, like, we might be imagining Bradford is like a 30-year-old. He's 18, man. He's still a, basically a kid. I mean, not back then. You were an adult at nine, but, you know, this is this is uh, today, current year. So it is, it is the current year. Yeah. So at 18, Bradford found himself in the Dutch Republic in the city of Leiden, which is funny because that's where Jan van Leiden came from. Oh, and that he was, would make sense with the name. Yeah, so... It's also where the Leiden Conventions, which are the typographic rules for how you put into word processor form a damaged text, like from an inscription or a, ma- or a manuscript. Um, that's interesting. <laughs> Look, I think the what, Leiden what? Conventions are very exciting. <laughs> I was about to ask you, what are the ground rules? Because so I just accidentally about- unplugged my computer. So it's, it's basically just describing how you deal with a damaged text. So like things that are almost certain but aren't quite certain what the letter is, have a dot under them, things which from context you know what it definitely says but the letters aren't on themselves decipherable, you know, go in one type of brackets. Like it's a whole set of rules for how you express the physical condition of a damaged text in a word processor. I see. Have you ever had to use these yourself? Oh, yeah, of course. I have to use Leiden conventions, um, you know, dealing with manuscripts or inscriptions. It's the it's the standard form. Cool. <laughs> um, okay, where were we? Uh, Leiden, 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 Leiden. Right, we're in Leiden. It's free of the Anglican oppression, and everybody's able to study church matters with impunity. You can question everything. 
The downside of this, which, I mean, there were downsides to having to leave your native country because of uh, religious persecution. The downside of this was that Bradford had nowhere to stay and no family to speak of. And that's when William Brewster said, you can always just sleep on my couch, bro. So Bradford does. <clears throat> Unfortunately, because Brewster and Bradford and the rest of these middle wares are technically foreigners um, in, in uh, the Netherlands... Uh, they have to get really shitty jobs, and they literally live in a place that's actually named Stink Alley. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine what problems they might have there. <laughs> and that's they, I know, right? And they stay in Stink Alley for about three years. You know, I can sense a sitcom that happens. The gang is all living in this shitty studio apartment in Stink Alley. Yep. Yep. They, they should totally do that. Do this. Like, it's just about Brewster and Bradford and all the other middle wares just living in Stink Alley and their wacky hijinks as they clean out horse stalls and feed the pigs, you know? It's good stuff. I'd so anyway, I'd watch it. Three years of this shit. I don't, I'd especially watch it if it was, like, historically accurate and involved, like, history jokes and shit like that. So anyway, <clears throat> when Bradford turns 21, his condition dramatically improves... Because at 21, he was legally allowed to collect his family's inheritance. Remember all those people who died? Yeah, they left him some shit, and he couldn't get it until now. But then he does. Uh, and remember, his family wasn't, like, poor. It's not like they left him a Pop-Tart and a, you know, a broken vape stick. Uh, <laughs> he, they, had the, uh, they had a legit estate and plenty of land, and Bradford collects... Uh, all of this inheritance, and uses his newfound wealth to buy his own house and set up a weaver's workshop so that in the long run he can actually make money by not having to clean out horse stalls. And the good news is, he's just killing it. He's making the best men's clothes money can buy in Leiden. And it was a special type of fabric that he made. Um, it was specially, especially designed for, for working men, so it was really kind of rough, but also really, like, tough. Um, so it was denim. Basically, he was making jeans, baby, and they weren't skinny jeans. These were your carpenter oh, jeans. Oh, these, the, these were the boot cut jeans. The oh, boot yeah. cut. Oh, yeah, baby. So, uh, um, but he's really well known for, for making, re like, weaving really, really good cloth. And for that reason, he's well liked by his neighbors. Um, because not only does he have, like, a really cool story where he, like, fled his country and he was, like, you know, a middleware who was just trying to figure out this bullshit with the, you know, the Reformation... Um, and they like his intentions because he's just like, I just want to get to the bottom of it and they won't let me. Um, nonetheless, you know, he does what he has to do to pull himself up and, uh, start this weaver's workshop. And of course he's selling, like I said, quality stuff for decent prices. And you know, he's, he makes good on his word. He's just known for being a decent man. Um, and two years after opening his, uh, his, uh, his weaving shop, he meets and marries a woman named Dorothy May who just happened to be the daughter of a wealthy couple. So, more money. Um, and four mo years... More money, mo problems. Well, you might say that because, well, you'll see. Four years later, they would have their first child. And guess what name William Bradford, son of William Bradford, son of William Bradford, would name his firstborn son? Parthenax. Nope. John. No, that was close. <laughs> Parthenax. <laughs> I don't know why Skyrim just immediately sprung into my head. Fusro da. Other than the fact that it belongs to the Nords. Of course. So, after establishing himself strongly in Leiden, William Bradford starts thinking about the future. He, he's like, I don't, can't, I don't want to stay in the land of the Dutch forever. Like, who would? 
Um, and on top of it, he was starting to notice actually all of the uh, the um, dissidents who were who were hiding out in, in the land of the Dutch. Um, they they're starting to notice that their kids are like starting to act like Dutch children, Ooh. and they're like picking up their traditions and and like the slang they use and shit like that. Um, this is legit a recorded reason why they were like, we can't stay here because they're, you know, they're not acting like English people, which you would think would be a good thing, but many English people are unaware of how intolerable they are. Um, true, true. I was, ha- I was having a conversation with somebody last night and he, he was saying that like, you could be the ugliest, dumbest, shortest motherfucker in the world, but if you had an English accent, nine out of 10 girls would do you. <laughs> and well, I was I like, I can't say I ever quantified that but i'm sure we can find some some polling data uh, we can find a little data um so yeah they're these guys are like we want to stay english and these dutch people are changing us so we've got to get out of here somewhere but you know there's no immediate future for these people back in the land of the anglos um however they have heard talk of a new world far away from the island of garbage there are whispers of a land where the reach of England isn't so strong, even though, you know, it's English colonies, but whatever. Um, and many people of all nations have gone to seek a new fortune. And this gets Bradford thinking, what if he were get to go to America and leave these <laughs> what Dutch if, uh, and English? What if we sailed across the Atlantic? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Unless... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Bradford's like, our future is in America, and we have to go now, uh, before things get worse here. So Bradford says, hun, we're gonna sell the family home, we're gonna go back to England, and we're gonna seek safe passage to the new world. So, he does, they sell the home, they, they procure what they, what they, uh, whatever access they needed to get back to England, um, and when they get there, they move into a neighborhood that's known for being something like a safe haven for religious dissenters, because there's a whole bunch of the Scrooby dudes uh, just there waiting to plan their next move. Um, and these uh, these Scrooby dudes begin to plan a colony in the Americas. So they're like laying the groundwork. They're like, all right, we're going to go there. It's going to be South, Central, or North America. And everyone's like, South America. And one guy's like, but I really like the cold. And like, North America it is, baby. So they decide that they're going to go to the northern part of the Americas. Road trip! Um, and all, yeah. But, but I not, mean... It, the, <laughs> actually, physically um, not a road trip. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, make, they're laying down these plans, and this is, this is difficult, and really not just because there's a, you know, an ocean between them and the promised land, but because they have to work with England in order to achieve their safe passage, but also... The legal right to establish a colony ver- basically in the name of England, even though they dissent against the Anglican Church. So they try to keep it on the down low, but you know, there's politician or politics and everything involved, so people who know that they're you know, their dissenters are like dragging their feet on the paperwork. You know, so as as dissenters, this was all going to be difficult as hell, and it eventually t- ended up taking three long years to maneuver the murky waters of English law in order to find some kind of loophole where they could establish a colony, even though they were religious uh, refugees, basically. But they finally get their paperwork in order and procure a ship, which is called the Speedwell, to take them far away from the island of garbage. So, let's just take all this in for a second and consider all that these people are about to sacrifice for their beliefs. 
First, they are sacrificing their homeland, or rather, it's sort of been taken from them and they have no choice, but nonetheless, they're losing all their friends and relations who are not going on the trip, uh, and they will soon be a world away. Like, almost, I mean, back then, this was like going to another planet. Um, on top of, this, of all of this, like I said, they're persecuted religious uh, fugitives crossing an ocean in a tub, and they are settling in a land that is unsettled, dangerous, unmapped, and foreign, and it has, uh, you know, frightening legends about a native population that's, you know, not really cool with the whole colonization thing. Um, and they're doing it in the 1600s, so, you know. Which is just an all-around shitty century, take my yeah, word for it. Agreed, yeah. So every time, every time you don't want to put on those running shoes and... Take a little run in the morning. Just remember the pilgrims and how they did all this in the 1600s while also belonging to something called Scrooby Manor. So. And also wearing those weird-ass buckled shoes. Do you know how hard it is to fucking run in those? Uh, I wouldn't know. I've never tried. But I remember in, in uh, first grade? No, second grade. We would all dress up. It was at a Christian school. We would all dress up for, for Thanksgiving. And there was one kid who had the, uh, the foresight to make buckles for his shoes and i remember la it was probably the hardest i'd ever laughed in my life up to that point because he just walked in and he had the hat and he had these little cardboard squares that were duct taped so they looked <laughs> like like metal and they were just sticking off of his shoes and just flopping all over the place i'm like fuck my pilgrim costume sucks but of course i now that i think about it I what, a, what a chad <laughs> i know <laughs> I remember I once bought a got a pair of shoes from a thrift store and then spray painted them red because I needed them for my medieval cardinal outfit. <laughs> oh man, you went as oh, a cardinal? No, it wasn't. It was no. I was Pope Boniface the Eighth. That was it. It was after I read Dante and I was like, seriously, I'm just tired of this dude fucking whining all the time. So I decided to dress up for Halloween as the guy who he hated the most, Pope Boniface the Eighth. Why did he hate him? Um, because basically personal political grievances disguised as some sort of moral outrage because Dante was in a political faction that was on the opposite side of Florentine politics is the political faction that the Pope was backing, but he I tried see. to dis disguise it all as being some sort of righteous thing. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, you know, everyone was fucking just fuckers in the Italian city States. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh. That's for sure. <laughs> wow, I, I'm a wordsmith. Everyone was just fucking fuckers. <laughs> you wow. sound like your average millennial, though. <laughs> Higher I've... education, people. It's worth it. Yep. Uh, I've actually personally try started trying to swear less because it's so unoriginal at this point. It's like having a tattoo. It's like, oh man, I got a tattoo. I'm so unique. It's like, you're unique if you don't have a tattoo. <laughs> That's true. Uh, That's true. Yeah. So can't, uh, now that cancel I'm, my appointment for tomorrow. <laughs> now that I'm back in the Midwest, I've started saying stuff like uh gall dang it and by the beard of Izmir. <laughs> <laughs> um anyway. Uh so yeah, this is a, gonna be a really, really difficult journey. And it's it's difficult for a lot of reasons, and it's it's very difficult on a personal level level for William and Dorothy Bradford. Um, because they have the added burden of having their first son. Um, and not just because, like, oh, I got, we gotta bring a kid and take care of him. It's because they can't actually take him. 
Because little John is a sickly and frail child. Un- oh, just, just un- like his dad. Yeah. Uh, wh- what? Come on. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Um, he's he's not he's not doing so hot, and like they know what's coming. They're about to journey across the world, uh, and they're not even fully aware of the dangers that are waiting for them. Like we're gonna get into it here in a sec. Um, but William and Dorothy at least knew well enough that there was no way this kid would survive the first winter. Um, with no guarantee of food or even adequate lodging. So, in a tearful farewell, they leave the boy with Dorothy's parents to be raised in Amsterdam and go back to England to begin the long journey to the New World. So the ships that the Separatists have acquired... Then they're called the Separatists, by the way. The ships that the Separatists slash Pilgrims have acquired for this journey are both the Speedwell and the all the well-known... Mayflower moving truck. Uh, And the Speedwell is a ship that was purchased by the Separatists, and it is a decommissioned warship weighing about 60 tons that fought in the war against the Spanish Armada. And at the time of this journey, the ship was 43 years old, which for a tub of wood is pretty old. (laughs) It's been on the ocean blue for 43 years. It's been in battles. It's all fucked up. Um, they stuck a mast on it that was way too big and started, like, stressing the wood, so it, it just, you know, they would sail it and it would just make these awful creaking noises, but, you know, it had a... like, it sounds like my car. Yeah. Yeah, your car, it has an oversized mast. Hey, man, don't judge. (laughs) I'm not judging. (laughs) You just... Your car's just got a big sail on it. (laughs) No, that's... No wonder you can reach 100 miles at 4 a.m. in that thing. Um... So anyway, the other ship, which is the Mayflower, is about three times the weight of the Speedwell. It's also estimated to be, to be about 20 or 30, about 20 to 30 years younger than the Speedwell. We actually don't know when the Mayflower um, was built, but we do know when it was first registered, and it's about 20 to 30 years um, after the Speedwell was constructed. So this ship was, the Mayflower, because it was a nicer boat, was chartered rather than purchased for this journey. Um, so in the August of 1620, the ship set course for Virginia, but as many of us know, because this is such a common story, they almost immediately had to turn back because the Speedwell, with its massive mast, was beginning to take on water. So the ship's berth in Dartmouth, uh, Dartmouth, or whatever, so that this can be corrected, they're like, alright, the mast is too big, and they're like, okay, well, we'll just put a little extra layer of tar inside, and that should do the trick, and, you know, you've got the first mate who's like the mast is too big and then you've got the ship's repairman who's like but it's really cool though so it's like uh it's like having a really big spoiler on your prius <laughs> so on your 1998 honda civic yeah <laughs> oh, it's like so, the other the other day i was at a gas station and i could hear a car coming from maybe a mile away. I could hear by the backfiring, and I obviously I was excited to see. Okay, what is this going to be? As I'm filling in my gas, and then finally it turns the corner, and it's like a fucking like 1993 Saturn <laughs> <laughs> that literally sounds, you know, like a really shitty Bugatti. It was amazing. <laughs> I love that. Like I just love this this vision in my head I have of you like you know it's like a short film or something you take the pump out of the out of the little holder and you put it in the in the car and 
take a drag on your cigarette, and then you hear something. It's... <laughs> and you look off into the distance, and the camera pushes in on your eyes, and you go, Oh my god. And then it just cuts <laughs> through this wide of this little dot trailing dust, and you can hear it. <laughs> Drop your cigarette and the whole place blows up. So I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, they they go and get the ship repaired and they set off again for the new world and they make it about 350 miles uh, from uh, from port and then they learn that the speedwell is leaking again. God. Damn. So they have to go back 350 miles back again. And this time, the frustrated separatists decided to sell the Speedwell because, and all just pack aboard the Mayflower because they're like, this is, this is crazy. Like, they, I mean, we can't keep doing this. So they do. They sell the Speedwell and collect the money and use it to fund uh, the journey. And the person they sell the Speedwell to never reports having any other problems because they took the mast off. <laughs> um... Or the Speedwell was a secret Anglican sympathizer that didn't want to transport these guys to the uh, to the to the New World, but yeah, uh, who can who can say? Also a possibility. So twenty of the people who were aboard the Speedwell were just so frustrated. They're like, "Fuck it, we'll be Anglicans," and they go back to London. Um, while eleven others from the Speedwell jump aboard the Mayflower, making the total number of passengers aboard this tiny ship a hundred and two people. Half of these were separatists, so we're still in that fifty range for the Scooby Dudes. Uh, and the other half were crew and other so colonists. So basically, it's like when you have like 10 people that pile into a sedan to go to Canes in college, and it's like half of them are your actual friends, and then half of them are just kind of people you picked up in the lobby. And one of them's a, a bike cop. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I see, I, got, I said that all wrong. There's 102 passengers plus 30 to 40 crew members. Okay. So it's more like it's closer to like 150 people on this dinky little tub. Um, but at least it wasn't as small as the Speedwell, which was not speeding so well. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, uh, so yeah, half separatists, half other colonists who weren't part of a religious movement going to the New World. Um, it's pretty packed, pretty tight conditions, and they're on their third attempt, so morale is already low, and it's going to be a long journey. So the Mayflower alone uh, greeted the waves and began the long journey to the New World again in the September of 1620. Bradford writes in his journal that the Mayflower was blessed with a, quote, prosperous wind. Which is a lie. <laughs> so, the dangers of this voyage were great. You had storms, sickness, windless days, and even potential British intervention with this journey. All of these were mortal threats. Uh, the Mayflower was decked out with a mere 12 guns in the event that the British or any other interested foreign power did try to intercept the ship. But in any case, they probably wouldn't have stood a chance because the the place is packed, uh, and the crew uh, is pretty small, relatively. So this voyage ended up actually being very long and very difficult. There were constant shortages in supplies and food, and um, like despite being on the ocean, most people had to drink beer um, or some other kind of, of preservable water because the water kept going sour. Um, so, I mean, all the pilgrims were presumably drunk the entire time. Um, there were constant, like, high waves just washing over the deck, um, which kept people wet and cold. 
Uh, at one point, one of these waves was so strong that it, uh, a key structural beam broke, threatening the ship and all its occupants with a watery grave. Ew. In this instance, many of the Separatists were called on to assist the crew in repairing the damage. Uh, of course, they were still cold, wet, hungry, sick, and probably drunk. But they did manage to help the crew repair the ship uh, to continue the journey. Otherwise, they probably would have had to turn back or risk sinking. And this journey lasted over a month, but at long last... And there's really not much else to it. Like, there were storms and everybody was cold, wet, and hungry the whole time. That's basically it. And it was just a war of attrition with Mother Nature. But at long last, they finally saw the shores of the New World at Cape Cod. Um, but the struggle was not yet over, for indeed the journey was only beginning. Now the true difficulty would begin. And William Radford, uh, Radford, Bradford uh, wrote a book, and it's called On Plymouth Plantation, and it's considered to be one of the greatest works in early American literature. And this is written in ye old English, so I'm going to try to read this uh, Don't properly. Don't worry. I'll laugh. Okay, please do. So, in ye old English, uh, On Plymouth Plantation, this is uh, William Bradford's account of when they arrived uh, on shore. So, quote... Being thus arrived in a good harbor, and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees, and blessed ye God of heaven, who had brought them over ye vast and furious ocean, and delivered them from all ye perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on ye firm and stable earth, from all ye peril- oh shit, I repeated a line- stable earth, their proper element. And no marvel if they were thus joyful, seeing wise Seneca was so affected with sailing a few miles on the coast of his own Italy, as he affirmed that he had rather remained twenty years on his way by land than pass by sea to any place in a short time. So tedious and dreadful was the same unto him. God, I'm not doing that voice anymore. Okay. <clears throat> no, that was actually pretty good. Oh, you want me to keep going? I'll do it. I can do it. I'm enjoying it. Okay. But here I cannot stay and make a pause and stand half amazed at this poor people's present condition, and so I think will the reader too, when he well considered ye say. Being thus past ye vast ocean, and a sea of troubles before in their preparation, as may be remembered by it which went before, they had now no friends to welcome them, nor inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies. No houses, or much less towns to repair to, to seek for succor. Basically, it, when you stay on campus over Thanksgiving break. Legit. Oh, man, you should tell your story about that. Wait, which story? The one, the time where you stayed over, over Thanksgiving break and, like, there was no hot water in the shower. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, um, yeah, that was, because I, I stayed several times. But, yeah, at one point, they decided it was a good time to do updates to the water system. So there was no hot water in the shower. Um, So I remember I was shaving. And so I just used my, like, electric kettle to heat up some water. And then I was like, you know what? I think I would enjoy shaving, whether I get good angle of vision on the sides and everything. So I was already having to heat the water remotely, so I literally just brought my hot bowl of water and a chair and my shaving stuff into the elevator that had the mirrors on all sides and just got in there with my chair and shaved. (laughs) (laughs) I never heard that one. I was thinking about the time you took the shower and you just yelled Odin the whole time. Well, yeah, that was when I, that was the same, same time when I realized that the hot water didn't didn't uh didn't ex- work anymore <laughs> yeah i just got into the shower and like realized this is fucking cold and so you and know ex- i just yeah i don't know what happened it was just like odin 
<laughs> so what you're saying is you basically know exactly what these people are going through right now. Essentially, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know. So yeah. Mutatis mutandis, I think so. <sighs> um. So, yeah, I think it's important to point out what he's actually saying, just to make it very, very clear. These are people at the end of one religious persecution, years of fleeing, uh, a failed journey that happened three times before it actually went through, um, people dying on the way there, uh, sickness, cold, wet, constantly, and you arrive in fucking November. Was it November? Shit. I think it might be November or late September. Yeah, it was November. They got there in November on the East Coast in the North. It's cold. And you don't even have a house to live in. So you're going to have to stay on the boat, which is still cold. So let's continue with this quote from uh, on, on, on Plymouth Plantation. Let it also be considered that weak hopes of supply and succor they left behind them. It might bear up in their minds in this sad condition and trials they were under. And they could not be but very small. It is true indeed, yea, affections and love of their brethren at Leiden was cordial and entire towards them, but they had little power to help them, or themselves. And how ye case stood between them, and ye merchants at their coming away, hath already been declared. What could not sustain them, but ye spirit of God and his grace? May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, Our fathers were Englishmen, which came over this great ocean, and were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried ye unto the Lord, and he heard their voice, and looked on their adversity. It's pretty tough stuff, you know. I mean, yeah, no, it definitely sounds like it sucks. Being a, being a settler was hard, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, no, it, 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 it was pretty, it was pretty shitty, um... When I was reading this, I thought about the Donner Party. Yeah. Ugh. I gotta cover them at some point. Yeah, we should. Settlers are like my new favorite thing, because uh, a genre of music I've recently gotten back into is like, uh, settler hymns. Like, prairie hymns. Uh, mainly because I watch True Grit, and the theme is leaning on the everlasting oh, arms. Yep, I, that is a beautiful one. Um, I, I love that one, actually. Yeah, yeah. you should, uh, I don't know, have, how much have you read about, um, ancient greek colonization uh virtually nothing yeah so the ancient greeks between the seventh and um really sort of ending the fifth century bc basically settled the shores all of all around the mediterranean and the black sea so we're talking everywhere from you know georgia ukraine you know the crimea bulgaria all the way coast of Spain, what's now Morocco, like in within the course of a couple centuries, ancient Greeks built coastal cities all along that whole Mediterranean and Black Sea. Wow, that's really cool, and I did not know that. Yep, yeah, and so then they would, um, they were obviously very maritime people, so they would trade inland with, uh, with non-Greeks and then trade with other Greeks via the sea. Fascinating. Man, it, it just, you know, it's so funny, like, the more history I read, the more I realize I don't know. Like, being completely unaware that the Greeks settled all the coast. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Pretty interesting, but... Anyway, so, 
Here's the thing, we all know that the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock and settled at Cape Cod, but they actually weren't supposed to go there. Um, their, uh, their, uh, supporters, or not supporters, the, um, the, uh, their financial backers were known as the Adventure Merchants? Something like that? Merchant Adventurers? Something with adventure and merchant in it. Um, these people were like, hey, like, you're not supposed to go north, you're supposed to go kind of like, you know, a little bit south of where you ended up landing. Um, but nobody cares because they're freaking cold and they're like, we need to land now. We need to build now because winter is already here. Uh, and to survive, we have got to get some structures up. Um, but like I said, winter winds had blown the ship far north of their intended de destination. And because of these difficulties, can you imagine? Uh, people were starting to get kind of pissed off with each other. I mean, I don't really see why being stuffed into a tub with 150 other people... Uh, constant food shortages, being drunk, you know, like, because there's no water. Um, well, no water that hadn't soured. Um, yeah, fights were breaking out. Everyone wanted to go to shore now. They wanted to feel the land beneath their feet. Um, and they wanted, they just wanted off this stupid boat. Um, but the leadership... I mean, fair. To be fair, yeah. But the leadership aboard the Mayflower had the wherewithal... Um, to know that the first thing that had to be established in this new colony was order. They weren't going to just go and build houses because they felt like it. They were going to do it right, uh, and they were going to establish some kind of legal structure before they did anything. They're like, here's how we're going to do things. And one of the things they really n had to do in order to allow this ship or this trip to still be sponsored, because there were more that were going to come after them on on subsequent journeys. Um, they had to draw up a, like a, a compact or a document or whatever that basically said, first and foremost, we serve the crown. Second, here's why we're here and here's what we're doing. And here's the rule of law that we're going to follow. So the men of the group got together and they drew up this document outlining the goals, laws, and loyalties of this uh, separatist group. And they call it the Mayflower Compact. And with this being done and agreed upon, the captain of the ship, Christopher Jones, as well as William Bradford took a squad and went to shore in search of a good place to build a settlement. And like I said before, the winter here in, Amer in America is actually notably harsher than it had been in England. Uh, the passengers of the Mayflower were ill-equipped um, for dealing with the wet and windy weather and the below freezing temperatures. The first night, in fact, they were, for they were forced to stay ashore because the water was too choppy to go back to the Mayflower but they had no shelter. They were wearing wet and inadequate clothing, um, which, you know, I'm sitting here in a trailer. It's 65 degrees, and I'm going, my God, how will I survive the night? Um, being out in the elements, completely exposed, uh, soaked to the, the skin, like, that sounds horrible. You probably can't even build a fire. Like, that's how wet it is. Um, and William Bradford reported in his, uh, his book on Plymouth, um, plantation that a ton of people got sick from this and never got better. Jeez, I wonder why. Yeah. Hey, man, I can hear your mouse clicking. Ah, no, you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> it, it took till this long in the episode for you to get bored. So. <laughs> no, no, it was just I got a, I got a um a semi urgent email from one of my students about if there's a quiz tomorrow, so I felt like I should answer it. Uh, do you want to take a break and answer it real quick? No, no, I already answered it. Oh, damn. You used <laughs> the on-screen the... keyboard. That's what all that clicking was. <laughs> um, so, yeah, people, it, it's already getting very, very difficult. Very, very miserable. 
Like, yes. This is not a. This is not exactly a vacation. No, and on top of it, um, it's like William Bradford said in his book. Like the only thing sustaining these people at this point was their faith, uh, and because they just believed so hard um, that that was all they had to hang on to. I mean, they'd been on the ocean for a month. Look, I spent a morning on a little fishing boat on Lake Superior fishing for it was and it was a charter boat. Like I wasn't even doing anything, and it was it got to be like it was really fun. But like just walking around on a boat while it was while the waves were going was just freaking miserable and like you know a little bit of a splash would come up and it was kind of cold because it was you know early morning and i'd be like oh god and it's like wow you know these people were made of sterner stuff you know yeah that's for sure um so yeah (laughs) you can say that as my friend um so anyway quickly supplies were running very low and the pilgrims have no idea what to do and they start looking around for potential sources of food and wild game is just about their only hope because it's winter. And speaking of wild game, uh, William Bradford, while leading his people through the woods in this initial expedition, got caught in a native's deer trap, which literally hoisted him up in the air by his <laughs> foot upside down. <laughs> Just like in the movies. Just like in the movies. Um, and so they had to cut him down. <laughs> uh, but to make matters worse, after Bradford returned to the Mayflower after his initial expedition to shore... He found out that his wife, Dorothy, had fallen overboard and drowned. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Like, they got there. He's like, all right, we're going to figure this out. We're going to go in the freaking woods and build a cabin. And then he goes in there and he's like, this place sucks. What are we going to do? We can't find any food. Whoop, I just got caught in a deer trap. It cut me down. It gets cut down, probably lands on his shoulder, causing back pain for four days. Gets back to the ship. He's wet. He's cold. His people are sick. And then his wife has just died. Holy crap. And this guy holds on. And he, I mean, it's amazing. So anyway, back on shore while exploring the area, trying to figure their shit out, um, the pilgrims discover a whole bunch of mounds. Just like earthen mounds in the forest. Now I know what you're all thinking. These pilgrims violated Indian burial grounds. And yes, in fact, they did. Largely because they didn't know what they were at first, and also because not all of these mounds were grave sites. Uh, many of them were corn stores uh, cached by natives, and they looked just—they all looked the same. Only the natives knew which were which. So when these starving pilgrims discovered, hey, there's corn here. Um, oh, and here's another thing: they assumed that it was by the. Um, oh fuck! What was that? Hold on, I gotta Google it. Um, there was a certain tribe. Uh, starts the name starts with a P. They had recently just been wiped out by a plague, like a year earlier, or, or two or three years earlier. Um, and they had left a whole bunch of stuff. In fact, the pilgrims settled on an area that was already cleared by the natives of this tribe. Um, but these natives, while interacting with English fishermen in the north, had contracted some kind of disease that they weren't immune to, and they had all died out except for one. Um, so the area was abandoned. So anyway, um, yes, so these, these pilgrims, uh, dug up these stashes of corn um, and this helped preserve their lives. Um, and we have differing accounts of this event. I want to be very clear. I'm going to be as fair as possible. So the historical revisionist and America hater, Nathaniel Philbrick, claims that the pilgrims went on f- after this a mad looting spree through all of the burial grounds and then went on a looting raid southward of the landing site until they were finally fought off by a tribe of natives and had to go back to Cape Cod. 
There is no historical evidence for this, and, f- and the only contemporary account of this was written by William Bradford himself. I mean, it hardly seems like they're really up to much fighting in their current state. Yeah, and they don't exactly have a history of doing this kind of thing, but, you know, they're colonizers, so they're probably all evil. You know what I mean? Um, so William... William, they, they just showed up to sign up for those Indian welfare benefits. <laughs> Anyway, so William Bradford uh, wrote that the pilgrims only took a little bit of the corn. They're, they found it, and they're like, oh, shit, like, we've got to eat this, but we'll pay it back. And th- here's the thing, is that the natives who had, uh, who, had pl- who had cashed this corn were like, yo, we've got enough, and if you want to pay it back, feel free. Because they did eventually meet and have a lot of conversations and a lot of dealings together. And the, the pilgrims, six months after um, borrowing this stuff out of desperation had paid back in full their debt to these natives, and the natives and the pilgrims had a really good relationship. Um, William Bradford also reports that they never really had any conflict with the natives, even though they were, like, paranoid, both sides. They were like, all right, like, we know you're savages, and we know you're crazy white people with guns. You know, it's that song from Pocahontas. (laughs) These white men are dangerous. (laughs) Were you going to say something? Now, I was going to say, I miss when children's animated movies actually had good music. Yeah, that is a good song, though. Um, it's the, What is it called? Savages? Something yeah. like that. Barely even human! Um, but I, oh, we just got copyright striked by Disney. Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, God, they're kicking in my door right now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so William Bradford never reports any conflict with the natives. Um, and like I said, but both sides were very paranoid, and everybody was like waiting like... What you gonna do? You know, like, are you gonna get me sick? Are you gonna, you gonna blow me up with a cannon? You know, um, so what they did have uh, co- uh, harsh conflict with the pro- pilgrims. That is, was the cold and sickness in the first winter, like from the moment they arrived to the moment spring was dawning. Over half of the people aboard the Mayflower died of various ailments caused by these conditions. And this prompted the remaining 53 passengers to get off their asses and get in gear and start building shelter on shore. And they began with what was called the common house, which was basically a multi-purpose longhouse. And Bradford got sick too here um, and stayed in this house during recovery. Uh, thankfully, he was not killed, but there were times uh, during this during this winter where there were like literally two or three people who weren't sick who were taking care of everybody. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it was bad. It got so bad, in fact, that sometimes two or three people were dying daily. Um, And they were failing so fast it was getting kind of scary, especially since the settlers were worried that the natives would see this constant burying of bodies as potential weakness. They're like, oh, they're weak, and they have, like, things that we want. Uh, Let's just wait for them to die, or maybe even usher it along, and then we'll just go pick up the cool shit. So the pilgrims were like, we can't let them do that. So they buried the bodies at night, uh, in unmarked graves, and if you can imagine, hacking away at the frozen dirt for hours at a time, and you have to dig it deep enough or the animals will dig it up and eat the corpses. Um, digging through frozen dirt to bury your friends who you just traveled across the ocean with. Ouch. And having to do it at night. I mean, we don't estimate the difficulty of this very well, but it's like the Revenant. I mean, it really is. Um, Albert Johnson obviously would have had no problem with this, but, you know, these, are, <laughs> these pilgrims are normal people. <laughs> They're not the mad trapper. 
Yeah, they're not the mad trapper of Rat River. That guy went through some shit. So, another part of this paranoia, and and I, I don't mean it was unjustified paranoia, because the natives had had bad experiences with colonizers, and the colonizers had bad experiences with natives, um, because, as obviously, like, the colonizers were not just, like, you know, people all from the same country who had the same code of ethics for dealing with uh, native populations. The colonizers, or the, the natives were dealing with you know, Portugal, Spain, France, England, but they all looked the same, so they were like, they're all the same, um, and they're all gonna act the same, but they didn't, okay? So, and the same thing with, it was the same thing with the, uh, the natives and the pilgrims was, they had heard stories about, you know, you know, Hernan Cortez's expedition with the Aztecs and all that stuff, and, um, they'd heard stories, you know, down south about different native tribes being- Oh, yeah, no, the differences between, uh, individual tribes- of the of the natives in what is now America is extreme. Yeah, um, like you know, you can, you run the gamut from extremely peaceful agrarian people to you know tribes whose customs included you know acts the barbarous bloodthirstiness of which is still to this day shocking. Like there was a huge huge range in terms of how these uh, how these tribes you know, are going to deal with, uh, outsiders. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that's often ignored by, you know, these kinds of stories. It's like, you know, they're either characterized, like these two groups are either characterized as barbarous altogether or, uh, you know, peaceful altogether. There was never a problem and no reason for paranoia, but we're talking about real life here. Things are complicated. Um, and, Luckily for the pilgrims, they encountered tribes that were peaceful. Um, and we'll get to that in just a second. But in the meantime, they have to be extremely cautious because they don't know, you know, with everybody being sick, if the door is going to get kicked down and they're all going to get torched alive in the common house. They just don't know. So in order to sort of assuage some of the fear that's that's building up within, the, uh, within these sick, scared uh, refugees, they bring their cannons ashore in order to in case they had to mount a defense of some kind. And there's a man named Captain Miles Standish who is in charge of uh, the village defenses. And this man had personally cared for Bradford while he'd been ill. Uh, and Bradford was obviously not a soldier, but Standish was. And the two developed a sort of bond of like differing expertise that allowed them to work together well. And eventually um, this, uh, this settlement was transformed as something like, you know, something like a defensible fortress in case something bad happened. Um... So anyway, once the winter was over, a local native tribe, uh, the Pocanokets, Pocanokets, I think, um, sent a man named Samoset, who had learned English while hanging out with a bunch of fishermen in Maine, to Plymouth to try and strike up a friendly relationship. So picture this. You're a pilgrim, and you're one of the half that survived the winter. You've been living in fear of the cold, and especially of natives since you got here. And you're starting to wonder why the fuck you came on this journey to begin with. And then suddenly, amidst all of this, spring is finally here, and there's just, all of a sudden, this native man walking up Main Street, and he looks like a native. You know, he's dressed in traditional garb. He's probably ripped um, and lithe and all the rest because, you know, he hunts deer with his bare hands. And he walks down the middle of the street, and you're like, oh, shit, they came here. And he just walks up to you and says, hello, stranger. Welcome to my lands. May I have some beer? Excellent. Because, exactly, so Samoset came into town, and he knew English, and he basically said, welcome, I hear you have beer, 
may I have some? <laughs> and so he like literally said, "Absolute legend." I know, a complete Chad. I mean, he he just he literally just welcomed. He's like, "Welcome, like welcome to our lands." Um, I know you've got beer, and I'm sure he fucking got it too because he stayed the night. <laughs> um, I'm sure that was one wild long house. Um. So later on, he would Samoset would come back with some other dudes who wanted to trade deer hides for whatever cool shit the pilgrims wanted to give up. But the pilgrims unfortunately informed the men that they were unfortunately not allowed to trade on a Sunday. <laughs> ah, the original Chick-fil-A. They're Puritans. They're running Chick-fil-A. They're like, sorry, we cannot trade you our spicy chicken sandwiches for your deer hides. <laughs> um, nevertheless, the pilgrims did offer the natives some food, so they got the spicy chicken sandwiches anyway, but it was pro bono. You know, these guys had come, you know, however long away to do trade, and they're like, hey, we don't do it on Sunday, but hey, here's some food. They didn't want him to leave disappointed, you know? And then Samoset was like, all right, we'll be back next week. And so he comes back again, this time accompanied by a man named Tisquantum, uh, which was shortened to Squanto, affectionately. Oh my god. That was a loud engine. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, Boiling Bradford shortened to Squanton's name to Squanto, um... It's the diminutive form of it. It's sort of like, you know, calling your buddy Steven Steve, you know. Uh, Steve-o, you know. <laughs> Squanto, Steve-o, you know. What's the difference? Um, but Squanto could speak English much better than Samoset, and the reason was this. Uh, reason for this was that he had actually been kidnapped and taken to England years prior, which must have been a total mindfuck. Um, you know, you've grown up in the forest, you've hunted deer all your life, you became a man, you know, you had your ritual, and all this shit, and then somebody's like, hey, kidnap that man, and then they take you to England, and then you hang out with what amounts to a banker for several years, and you learn the God. ways... <laughs> you learn the ways of the English, and, you know, then you eventually somehow manage... Oh, and by the way, you know that uh, tribe that was wiped out by the plague, and there was only one survivor? Yes. Th that was Squanto. Hmm. Yeah. So, and, you know, he could have been pissed off that the English spread the disease, and that his whole tribe... He probably was, but he got past it, um, and he and he actually informed them, like, hey, yeah, I used to live here, um, and here's where we planted all our stuff, so here's where the fertile ground is. Uh, he shows them how to plant corn, he shows them how to fish for eels, and, you know, regular fish, too. Um, and he became the primary portal between these two worlds for about a year, um, before he succumbed, uh, he would succumb to the same disease that killed the rest of his people. But oh. I know it's really it's really a sad story. And as I was working on this, I was like, I really should have made this about Squanto. But you know, maybe we'll do him next year. So anyway, he also arranged before he was you know uh, tragically killed by this disease. He had arranged a meeting between the pilgrims and the chief of the Poconokets, uh, who was named Massasoit. And at this meeting, the two tribes agreed that they would be allies. Like if there was an unjust war waged by the British against the pilgrims, the tri the uh, the Poconokets. Uh, would stand with them, and if there was an unjust war waged by a foreign tribe, because the Poconokets had lots of enemies to the north, um, that the pilgrims would stand with them and allow them to use their fortress for their defense. Um, and this agreement was made within the presence of the governor of Plymouth, um, who actually, after this, would after, very shortly after this, would collapse in a field and die within a few days. Oh, damn. Um, at which point, William Bradford was selected as the new governor of the colony. Now, we're going to come to an abrupt ending to this story only because the the interesting part's about to, about to close. Um, but William Bradford was made governor of the co colony, 
and uh, the agreement that was reached between this this uh, allyship between Massasoit's people and uh, the the uh, the pilgrims uh, is often conflated with like the actual Thanksgiving holiday. Like th- people think like we formed an alliance, let's feast, and it it wasn't like that. The Thanksgiving feast would come later on that year after the pilgrims, thanks to the help from the natives who knew the land and knew how to grow food here. Um, after they managed to have their first really successful harvest. It was a very, very good harvest. And it was so good, in fact, that the natives and the pilgrims threw a 30, or a 30, threw a three-day party sometime in the autumn. Um, Yay! Isn't it so cute? Um, And what's interesting was there were about 50 pilgrims, but there were like 90 natives who showed up. And the one the people who did the the cooking was like three women. They cooked for like over 100 people. (laughs) So, you know. It's a grand harvest. And of this, uh, William Bradford writes, of this, uh, this harvest celebration and the, uh, and the bumper crop that they had, they began now to gather in the small harvest they had and to fit up their houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength and had all good things in good plenty. For as some were thus employed in, employed in affairs abroad, Others were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish, which of which they took good store, of which every family had their portion. All the summer there was no want, and now began to come in store of fowl as winter approached, of which this place did abound when they can be used, but afterward decreased by degrees. And besides waterfowl, there was a great store of wild turkeys, of which... They took many, besides venison as well, etc. Besides, they had about a peck a meal a week to a person, and now since harvest, Indian corn to the proportion, which made many afterwards write so largely of their plenty here to their friends in England, which were not feigned, but true reports. Which is just beautiful, you know? They yeah, had that, that, that is nice. They had such a hard year, and... It's, it's, you know, it, it makes you want to cry. Like, these, they had a hard year. They were afraid of, of these natives. And then the natives came out and they're like, we're not all the same, dude. And here's how to plant corn. Please don't die. <laughs> um, and then they're like, let's be war buddies. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's really, really heartwarming. And, you know, for Bradford and his people to be able to report this, this, you know, bounty that they've found abroad instead, you know, and report back that things were going well, like, you know, the people who didn't go probably felt pretty good about that. Um, so the first Thanksgiving Day, this three-day celebration, was not an officially sanctioned holiday. In fact, it would not be until 1623 that Bradford himself declared it a yearly event. It wasn't a day, though. It was just like, whenever we have a bumper crop, we have to have, at least once a year, like a Thanksgiving feast, where we all gather, um, you know, children of the land to give thanks to the good Lord above for what has been provided for us. And after this event, um, Bradford would serve as governor there for over 30 years, a uh, service which he would record in his two-volume book of Plymouth Plantation. And as I said earlier, this book became one of the first significant pieces of American literature. And Bradford's last, you know, his 30 years of service were marked by fairness, um, goodwill between the natives and the pilgrims, and balance. Um, and... He was well known for being an honorable uh, governor and that he did a good job. And uh, he would eventually die there in the Plymouth Colony. Um, And the Plymouth Colony itself would exist as its own entity until 1691, at which point it was incorporated into the province of Massachusetts Bay. 
So what year what year was it that they they founded it? Uh founded Plymouth Colony? Yeah. Uh let me go back. 1620. Okay, so yeah, almost 75 years. That's a yeah. pretty good run. Yeah, not bad at all. And it's not like it just died out. It just became a part of a larger thing, a province, you know. Um So anyway, I love this story and I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I knew some of this, um, mostly just from uh, having to learn early American history. Mm-hmm. And I also had a, a friend whose ancestors came over on the Mayflower. Um, but yeah, so I'd, I'd, I had to learn the vague, vague outline of all this, but I'd forgotten most of it. I did remember that the journey over really, really sucked, um, but that was about it. Yeah, um, yeah no, it's... Um, I was I was waiting for like it to get really really bad um and like weird puritan bullshit um but it actually like it sounds like on the whole this was actually a pretty a uh, a pretty chill group of guys. Well, the compared uh, the, to some Oh, sure. The, I mean the puritans had a whole bunch of weird doctrines that they believed. Um but these were separatists. These weren't I don't know how to put this exactly, but I I'm pretty sure they weren't part of the larger Puritan movement. Um, you know, they practiced some weird stuff, but I think they did it in good faith. And to think about, you know, the Puritans as a group, growing up in a world where Christianity has been atomized um, for, you know, what, a couple hundred years at this point? Uh, yeah. It's... You know, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt because, one, they grew up in England, which is horrible on its own, but... Um, as we've established. As we've established. Um, but I don't know. There's something noble about this story, and I I really uh, I really like it. And I'm, it's, it's sort of filled me with spirit for, for Thanksgiving this week. And, you know, some t- I remember when I was a kid, we would talk about this story, and we got the, you know, the happy, nice, you know, the natives were just there to help and the and the the uh puritans you know never had a a worry in the world about the natives you know leaving out the uh the uh rightful and justifiable paranoia between the two groups um you know to to see that they overcame all that um is pretty cool i will say so and plus at the end of that harsh journey and that long i mean just think about where they came from they came from Growing up in a place where they could get in trouble, arrested, starved to death in prison for questioning a church built on the balls of Henry VIII, who was a murderer, um, a mass murderer, I will add, um, moved to the Netherlands to try and eke out some kind of life, but realized that they were sort of losing their identity by being there, and then going to America to get a fresh start, and struggling through one of the worst winters ever, losing half their people, half their friends, their leader lost his wife to a freak accident where she fell off a boat. Um, they went through all that, and they got their bountiful harvest. And how did they... And at the end of all of that, what did they do? They gave thanks. And if that isn't a symbol of humility and gratitude, I really don't know what is. So yes, my heart is warmed, and I will be thinking of the pilgrims and the natives when I bite into a turkey leg this week beautiful (laughs) well i think we ought to head to the surface yep i think so off we go 
George, in the spirit of giving thanks, what are you thankful for this Thanksgiving holiday? I am thankful for... You can take this a lot of directions, buddy. Yeah, no, that's uh, that. I'm going a hundred different directions at once. Um, <laughs> it kind of like the first like things that all jumped into my mind at once were my cat, the Second Amendment, and the fact that my electric bill is bundled into my rent. Wait, what was that? <laughs> my cat, the Second Amendment, and the fact that I don't have to pay my pay the electric in my in my apartment. It just uh, is included in the rent, which means I could actually like keep the apartment warm in the cold winter and not have to pay for it. Well, that's, uh, that's wonderful, man. I remember those days when I had an apartment and power. (laughs) That was literally like two weeks ago, Aaron. I know, I know, but it feels like way longer. Uh, You're just becoming Albert Johnson up there. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's going to come to check on you and you're just going to start shooting and then you're going to run into Canada. Oh, yeah, and then it'll be... History repeats itself. You're asking for it, Canada. <laughs> well? <laughs> the, the mad podcaster of Chicago. <laughs> of the Chicago River. Yeah. Um. So what are you thankful for, Aaron? Well, I just gotta say... I thank God for this day. For the sun in the sky. For my mom and my dad. For my piece of apple pie. For our home is this, on the is this ground. some weird Protestant thing I wasn't exposed <laughs> I wasn't exposed to? It's from Veggie Tales. <laughs> oh, okay. It's it's the good Protestantism. I could sing it to you if you want. <laughs> Dad, it's the good Protestantism. <laughs> Son, there are no good Protestants. <laughs> oh man. Yep. No, nah, I would say I would have this to. This is the do- this is the dollar store. How good can it be? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, I think the message of VeggieTales is very clear. A thankful heart is a happy heart. I'm glad for what I have. That's an easy way to start. You know, it's so simple. Yep, I would say yeah. I'm grateful to be back home. I'm grateful for this podcast. I'm grateful to our listeners. I'm grateful to our patrons. I'm grateful to the people who reach out and say thanks. And I'm, I'm just glad you're all here. Uh... It's been a beautiful year. And no, we didn't do another awful Thanksgiving sketch, but if you want to hear some really cringe early days of this show, we did a Thanksgiving special a couple years ago that nobody listened to. and it is That sounds god-awful. I'm it's, glad I didn't listen to it. It's horrendous. It was back when we were doing a hell of a lot more ske- sketches. Back uh, when you thought you were funny. Yeah, back, back when we were actually not that funny and, you know, didn't know anything about the Irish. So... Anyway, I hope you all have a great Thanksgiving. I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably British. Oh, that's... See, that's so overdone now. <laughs> if you hate us, you're probably Anglican. We really need to update the script <laughs> occasionally. Well, I mean, I, it, it says in here you're probably right, but we keep you, coming we, across... We've been, we've been saying the British thing for a long time. Okay, I'm going to stop. If you hate us, you're probably Dutch. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron <laughs> on patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drops a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. If you liked today's episode, please consider throwing a couple bucks our way. I currently am literally homeless. (laughs) 
Uh, every little bit helps. Our cover art was created by... Uh, by the way, every dollar goes to the show. I don't. I u- literally don't use a penny of it. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of Thanksgiving turkey play you out. We gather together to ask the Lord's blessing. Each day.